HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Italy, the Italian marketplace where you can eat, shop and learn all things Italian food and drinks. For more information, visit Italy.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And, you know, in today's society, women are in the workforce in equal numbers, and maybe, who knows, even more. And we are poised for hopefully, possibly, having our first woman president. But, of course, it wasn't always that way. And aside from the image of Betty Crocker holding down the fort, um, and there was one image that really epitomized the stay-at-home, stay-close-to-the-stove mother, the woman of the house, and that was the Italian mama stirring the endless pot of tomato sauce with aromas of fresh herbs wafting through the kitchen and tables laden with course after course of delectable dishes. <laughs> but believe it or not, not all Italian mothers fit that image. And my guest today is going to bust that myth, if, in fact, you thought it was true. My guest is Rob Chirico. And Rob is a, an accomplished cook and also an artist. And he has written, um, he's the author of Field Guide to Cocktails and a cultural, damn, a cultural history of swearing. I don't know where that fits in, Rob. And Onward Kitchen Soldiers. Uh, Rob also... He's been in food competitions, cooking competitions. He cooks, but his mother does not. And his new book is called Not My Mother's Kitchen. Welcome, Rob. Hi there. Listen, tell me, what. when did you first discover that your mother was not really a good cook? I suppose when I first opened my eyes and my nostrils. Uh, you know, in fact, on Fridays, because it was a Catholic family, we would have the requisite fish cakes and... It just turned me off fish for forever. I would walk around the house with a clothespin on my nose, and my father would, you know, would pull out his hair, whatever he had left. And, uh, you know, so early on, you know, I realized that 
there was something to cooking, and it wasn't something my mother was doing. My mother, you know, the stereotypical Italian mother is loving, giving, a great cook. Well, my mother was two out of three. <laughs> hey, that's not bad, right? <laughs> right. I mean, I, you know, the, the image that has been projected, oh, on probably on labels, jars of sauces, which, of course, would be anathema to the woman they were portraying, you know, is the, is the, the, short crop permed probably salt and peppered haired woman with the you know that that house dress apron on you know with a smile stirring a pot but of course it was pl- pasted on a jar of ready-made sauce so go figure right <laughs> yeah exactly i mean in our house you know my mother would make her sauce and most of the time it was um, pureed canned tomatoes but mixed with something like ragu oftentimes you know it was not straight tomatoes i recall one uh, sunday though i was in my early teens and she brought out the tomato sauce and i said this is different what did you do and of course she thought i was making fun of her food and because that's i kind of what we did often but i said no really this is very good and she showed me the can and they turned out to be Luigi Vitelli San Marzano tomatoes. <laughs> so early on, I had a sense of there is good stuff out there. And, uh, and I certainly saw it with other families in the neighborhood. But my mother just, you know, she was busy doing other things, and she was happy and great at, at it. But it, cooking was just not something she really cared to do. So convenience foods, the craft and so forth, uh, you know, those are the things that were to her advantage. Well, which, you know, a, a large portion of the American population, and I dare say also the Italian population, in the, um, certainly in the in the 70s, but definitely in some in the 60s and even the 50s, grew up with that. Um, it just didn't fit the mold. What um, was, but you had, there was cooking in some, cooking in some of that, you knew from what was different in your background. Who did you learn that from? It was a, I call myself a slow learner. Somehow, uh, even my grandmother, who was supposedly a terrific cook, uh, basically cooked mostly American style. I mean, when she did cook Italian, she cooked it just for herself. Her husband was born here. She was born in Italy and came over. And um, she would uh, have me watch craft mystery theater with her because she was illiterate, and she wanted me to write down the great craft recipes hmm. with cream cheese and so forth. So, you know, we were not used to eating, you know, what she would have been used to cooking. I mean, I shied away from her ravioli whenever she made them because they had spinach inside, and as far as I knew, spinach was was awful because <laughs> it came from a box or the beans that came from a can. You know, how little I, you know, I, I actually learned from her. But um, but there was something there anyway that I knew that, you know, Italian food, it just the word restaurant made me think of Italian food and good Italian food. But, you know, most Italian food that we had growing up was in a restaurant, antipasto, provolone, uh, spaghetti and meatballs, you know, lasagna oozing with mozzarella. I mean, with the idea of an Italian, a true Italian meal, when I learned visiting Italy, you know, was something like a sonata. You know, you had um, various courses. They, they one after another, after another, slowly. In our house, it was more like a jam session. 
you know, everything came out at once. Salad came out, food came out, you know, it all came out on one plate at the same time. And when you're growing up, it was kind of giggle, gaggle, gobble, and git. You know, you wanted to go out and play. All right. Well, you know, and this is, and you're talking about the late fifties and through the sixties. Uh, yes, because I uh, I was born in fifty two, so it was. Uh, really this new TV age that you were watching ads and you were getting suckered into things on television. Mm-hmm. I re- recall seeing an ad for, of all things, margarine, and it was a Viking, and he was eating this uh, piece of bread slathered with this margarine, and I said, Ma, you have to go out and get that. That looks just great. <laughs> you know, of course, I took one bite, and I, I'm sure that that package of margarine is still festering in some uh, dump somewhere, you know, going through its half-life. Right. It, it was awful. I mean, I knew it wasn't any good. Oh, now, did you grow up in an ethnic neighborhood where there was a lot of, uh, we wouldn't even call it ethnic in those days, but in a neighborhood where there were um, other Italian families who did cook? Or Yes. In fact, uh, right down the street from us, I had my cousin, Gerard, and his mother was a good cook, but uh, his uh, grandmother, who was my grandmother's sister, was a terrific cook, and she'd come over and she'd start the day, and she'd be making her ravioli and her minestrone and her chicken, and you know it, it was a, a laborious process for her. But she just, you know, either loved it or felt compelled to do it. And yeah, now wait a minute, don't kid yourself. There, was, it was also something that had to be done. I mean, of, you know. of course, it ha- yes, absolutely, it had to be done. And I even wonder about my grandmother. You know, again, she feeling compelled that this was this was her job. This was what she had to do. And one of my uncles lived in the house, uh, her house, at the same time. They lived across the street from us, I should point out. And he would come home from work. He would sit down at the table in his underwear and just like, consume mountains of food. <laughs> that really was, that really does epitomize, I think, what a lot of people imagine. I mean, yeah. it's like you know, one of those old bad TV shows or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I, the disclaimer here is that I am not Italian at all. I married into the name. But I always say that because I lived there for a long time and learned to cook there in Italy, that um, my palate is Italian. So I, so I certainly, and I grew up in, in a household that sounds very much like what your mother was, you know, cooking. And, that you know, um, although my mother was a good cook, she, there were a lot of convenience foods. You know, I mean, frozen foods were, oh, that, that was the thing, right? Yeah, was the and our family thing. was so fussy that the, the panacea was uh, TV dinners. <laughs> you know, my sister could have the chicken TV dinner, and I could have the meatloaf TV dinner, and my father would have very little of anything. In fact, sometimes he he would jokingly say when my mother brought out some food, like it was this is who did it and ran. And um, but you know, he, he was you know very kind to her for the most part. Nevertheless, it seemed interesting that usually by around nine o'clock he was uh, raiding the fruit bowl and, and eating pretzels and everything else because he he really didn't have a good meal at dinner time. Hmm. Interesting. What at what age did you really start to cook and realize that you could you could make good food? Uh, curiously, the first type of cooking that I began experimenting with was Chinese. I had been given a wok when I was in graduate school, and I just started cooking up Chinese food. It wasn't very good as I look back on it now, but somehow I thought I had vicariously assimilated, you know, the Italian method of cooking, but, but I didn't. You know, I was doing, trying to do the same things that my mother was doing, but only trying to make them better. But really it was when I was in Italy and I started tasting the foods there, and I said, this is fantastic. 
And that's when I embarked upon trying to learn how to cook real Italian food. Hmm. Well, you know, you you mentioned that, um, well, first of all, the the food that you were eating uh, from your, some of your relatives probably was Italian, but more Italo-American or Italian-American cooking because of the, the ingredients, no doubt, right? Absolutely. If you look through uh, Ada Boni's um, Talisman cookbook mm-hmm. that was published in the early 50s. Now, Ada Boni, I should backtrack and say that you know she has um, a history of great cookbooks in Italy, and her Talismano, the Felicità, is one of the supreme cookbooks in the world. Indeed. And yes. the Talisman came out in the 50s and was sponsored by Ronzoni. <laughs> now, of course, the thing is, when you're buying food for her cookbook, there is no risotto rice, there's no arborio rice, there's no guanciale, there's no pancetta in the 50s, so the recipes are adapted to the American palate. She'll just say for her risotto, I'll use rice. And of course now, it's it's a different world. We can get all of these ingredients, or so many of these ingredients that were just not available. So the, the families in, in regular neighborhoods, you know, were not able to find good good Italian ingredients. In Corona uh, in New York, my grandmother would take me with her because, again, she was illiterate and she needed someone to like you know, do all the reading for her. So I'm a little kid. I'm like eight years old. We're going to Corona and you know, seeing real Italian foods uh, and wondering what the heck is that bacala thing over there. And, uh, but in general, in neighborhoods, you had to make do with what was there. Mm-hmm. That's right. And in the usual, you know, Kroger's or, or A&P grocery stores, supermarkets certainly didn't carry um, foods that would be even considered quasi-ethnic, um, you know, not until probably the, the 70s, I would imagine. Well, in fact, I, when I first moved up to Massachusetts, well, one of our stop-and-shops started um, selling DiCecco pasta. And I said, wow, this is incredible. Now, this, this is in the um, 1980s. And I said, you know, I started buying boxes, and then I came back a few weeks later, and there was no DiCecco. And I said to the uh, one of the people there, you know, well, where's the pasta? And she went and asked, and she, uh, she said, well, the manager said, you're probably the only person buying them. <laughs> but, of course, now you go into the stores, and there it is. There's the Checo. There's so many other brands that you can find. And, of course, um, Italy's is fantastic. And the nice thing about Italy is that you can order online. So I can buy, you know, fabulous uh, Italian pastas and have them delivered to my door. Yeah. Well, now, what I failed to mention about your book, um, Not My Mother's Kitchen, um, it, wonderful stories, very reminiscent of, of that of growing up in that time. And but the the subtitle is Rediscovering Italian-American Cooking Through Stories and Recipes. And I have to say, you have um, terrific recipes peppered throughout this the book. Um, but many of them are not so much Italian-American um, that I found. I mean, you include quite a few recipes that even... Uh, that very few America, uh, Italians living in America would have known, you know, uh, such as the frico or the pasta using induya. I mean, only if they came from particular regions. So you really, I mean, you have some some um, true Italian recipes and not so much Italian-American. But tell me, we, we have finally, you know, there's a lot of discussion about authenticity in the culinary world these days. Um, 
and um, we're kind of throwing that. I think I've, I'm on the side of throwing the word out altogether because if you know if someone has cooked it for a long time, it is authentic if it's their dish. Um, but Italian American cuisine has really now earned a place as as its own cuisine, uh, you know, separate from Italian food. Some say, well, that's not real food, real Italian food. No, it's Italian American cuisine. Tell me a little bit about what you, how you feel that differentiates from um, what you know, because you've been in Italy, what you know from Italian food. Well, even if you look at Italy itself, you know, with its 60 or so regions, and within the regions you have specific types of food that you won't find in other places. In the south you might find more olive oil, in the north you might find more butter. You know, in Tuscany you're going to get, uh, you know, particular types of meats and sausages. Every town seems to have its own special food. Mm-hmm. So it, it, you could say Italian-American is, is our version of one of the, you know, 600 varieties of food in Italy. And if you think about it, Italy really was only incorporated in 1861. Now, before that, you had French influence in places, you had Greek influence, uh, there's the leftover Etruscan influence. So, you know, Italy itself is this minestrone of, of, of many different types of food. So, you know, we can say Italian-American, but you can also say Bolognese, you can say Sicilian, you can say Sardinian. You know, each one of those places is specific to its own type of food, and I think Italian-American is just our, our branch of that. Right. Interesting. Um, some of the dishes that you um, that you include, or that you what what were would be some of the dishes that you more or less rediscovered that you realized were actually good dishes, even though they were I, I want to say changed dramatically and became an American Italian dish. Well, you know, one thing, of course, is, you know, you have meatballs. Now, mm-hmm. in this country, you know, we eat spaghetti and meatballs, and they're fabulous. We can, we can, if you have a good meatball, that, that's great. In Italy, they eat meatballs, but they just don't eat them the same way. They don't eat them with a spaghetti and a sauce. You know, the, a popoletti are these little meat um, dishes that you can eat as an appetizer, eat with a, uh, a meat sauce, but not not as we have them here. So specifically, you know, what we think of as Italian, something veal parmesan. You know, these are dishes that you won't find over there. Anyone who has seen uh, the film Big Night, mm-hmm. and the woman asks for her risotto, and it takes so long to come out, she's wondering where the heck it is, and finally it comes out, and she's wondering where the spaghetti is on the side. <laughs> and you know, that's you would, right. You'd never see that in, in Italy. So what I do in my book is try to come up with recipes that, you know, that I love, spaghetti and meatballs, but at the same time, you know, I make variations on um, typical Italian dishes. Like a, a, I don't call my bolognese a bolognese. I call it a, a lamb ragu, um, and because I use lamb, but other people would use lamb in Italy as well. I use white wine, which is expected. In this country, you go to five different restaurants, and you're going to get five different versions of a bolognese. But that would be the same in Italy. Mm-hmm. So while I do my variations to uh, do what I think tastes best for my family, for me, for my friends, I also include dishes like spaghetti al carbonara, cacio e pepe, that are as close to what people would consider the authentic versions there. So it really is a combination of the type of 
dishes that I think would appeal to people in general, but there is a sense of, of being authentic as well. Right. Well, and I think a lot of the, um, the I would say this is the Italian-American uh, cookbook of the modern day, because a lot of, as I said before, a lot of the ingredients that you incorporate and some of the dishes that you use are things that I think Americans are more accustomed to seeing on certainly Italian menus uh, if they go to a restaurant, and although it may still not be cooked in the home of an Italian family, because you, as you mentioned, as you described, they would cook the foods of the region where they came from. Um, but I, I think I go back again to the, the Frico. Um, that's something that probably very few um, people know about, but then those who maybe watch you know, Italian cooking shows on television or perhaps do. Tell us about that. Well, you know, one of those dishes in particular, if you say the, the frico, you know, it's not going to be known in other parts of the country. I mean, we're, um, you know, Parmigian, Parmigiano-Reggiano is um, so popular. In other parts of Italy, they're going to have different cheeses, and they're going to make entirely different dishes. So when you see something like frico, it's something that the Americans really have discovered more than the Italians have. Uh-huh. Right. Because it tends to be more of a regional dish there. Um, you know, it, it, um, Frico is from Friuli, Venezia. You know, it's, uh, it's an entirely different place where people, you know, down in Sicily would have, you know, would wonder, what the heck is that? <laughs> you know, in the same way that Polenta, for example, um, you know, was cucina povera. It was, it was uh, poor people's food. But... Um, I mean, Frico, it, it's more of a tradition that you might find coming from the, the, the Alps, where they're used to um, cheeses and fondues. So the, the local dishes often reflect the regions that are either nearby or the people who had settled there. Mm-hmm. Uh, another dish I talk about that's not at all Italian, but people associate it with Italy, is the Caesar salad. And in that case, what I try to do is take it back to its source. If you, if you ask people what's in a Caesar salad, they'll say, well, romaine lettuce, um, anchovies, lemon, eggs, um, cheese. Well, it turns out that when I was doing my historical research for the book, I found out that Cesare Cardini, who lived in the United States, had his restaurant in Mexico, and the reason for that was it was during Prohibition. And during Prohibition, you could make money by selling booze, but not in the States. And one fourth of July, it turned out that uh, they were running out of food, so he came up with this dish on the spur of the moment. However, there were no anchovies in it. Hmm. He used uh, Worcestershire sauce, which has anchovy flavoring. And another thing comes down to us because of bad translation. In Spanish, they really didn't have a word for limes. It was simply limon. Uh-huh. So people started using lemons, the same way that in certain cocktails they'll use lemons. And then they realized, no, 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 it's actually lime. So in the initial dish, he used lime juice rather than lemon juice. In fact, when I was living in Buenos Aires, I wanted to try try to get some limes, and I was speaking to someone, and he had no idea what I was talking about. And I said, well, you know, it's somewhere between a lemon and a gin and tonic, you know. And um, 
and then I, would, I finally bought a tree and was growing it on my balcony. <laughs> That's one way to get a lime. <laughs> mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'd bring them into the country, you know, sneak them in, which is so odd because you know, it, if you think about it, Brazil is right next door to Argentina, and the Brazilians use limes by the bushel full. And you could say the same about Italy, that you have you know, one dish in one place, and in another place it's unheard of. All right. Um, you, you talked about um, ingredients not being available, um, particularly some of the, the um, flavoring cuts of meat, like pancetta and guanciale. And you do include a recipe for bucatini alla matriciana, and that incorporates guanciale. And, of course, now that they've had the, now, you know, the earthquake, we are all very aware of amatrice. And um, that recipe has that has probably been one of the more popular recipes to cross the ocean and be you know a standard kind of of Italian and Italian American dish. Um, any differences that you perceived in the Italian American version? Well, that's the interesting thing to see how it developed over time. The earliest Italian American cookbooks here, if they talk about this dish, they say use bacon. Later on, you have people saying, well, use pancetta or bacon. And it's only more recently that uh, guanciale is being made by artisanal um, um, meat um, butchers and so forth, that the true amatriciana is coming down to us using guanciale. Now, many people have not heard of guanciale. It's pig jowl. And... If, if you look at even Ada Boni's uh, book from the 1970s, she includes the spaghetti al guanciale, but she doesn't say use guanciale, she says use bacon. Huh. And uh, Marcella Hazan, the great Marcella Hazan, in her dishes, you know, it's use pancetta or bacon, and you really don't start seeing guanciale in recipes, in books, until just the past few years. Mm-hmm. That's true. Interesting. Well, this is this book is um, a delight. Uh, it's every every chapter has, has uh, introduction with some very humorous and very touching um, anecdotes and and stories of that I think anyone from that era or had you know relatives in that era would certainly recognize and be able to relate to and and the. Recipes are delectable, I must say. So, Rob, I thank you for writing this book, and I thank you for joining me and talking about it today on A Taste of the Past. Well, thank you for having me on. It was great talking to you. All right. And I hope you'll tune in again and listen to more stories from A Taste of the Past. For listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Buongiorno amici dell'Italia, got all that if not come to Italy, the only place you can eat, shop, learn everything Italian food and drink. Come inside to eat at one of the many restaurants such as Italy Seafood, Vegetable or Pizza and Pasta Restaurant. We also have a quick and delicious panini you can take to go. Then you can shop around the grocery and retail market for fresh pasta, house-made bread and high-quality cheeses from Italy and the U.S. Italy is also a place to learn. As a student in La Scuola di Italy, you can learn about making fresh pasta, Italian dessert, pairing wine and cheese, and more. And you must try Italy's homemade gelato. So, what are you waiting for? Visit us in New York City or Chicago, soon in Boston and Los Angeles, or Italy.com. Ciao, amici!